you've entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. So what's this I hear that in Great Britain they've come out with an analysis of UFO sightings saying there's no evidence that the aliens are among us? So that's an interesting question because it turns out that there was this, apparently this secret report that had been completed back in 2000. So this thing has apparently been around for a while, this secret report that the Ministry of of Defense in Britain had come up with that said that they found no evidence of flying saucers or even unidentified flying objects that were anything other than natural phenomena genes. So it's as if they're saying that 100% of all the cases that they studied, we have to you know, sort of realize that they didn't look at everything around the planet, but 100% of the cases that they studied were due to quote-unquote natural phenomena. Well, I guess and we could say the aliens are natural. You'd think anything that's in the universe is part of nature. I don't remember anybody saying that nature was constricted to the planet Earth. I certainly hope in our vanity we don't believe that. But, you know, Gene, I have to say, I find this, this report a little bit problematic in terms of saying that there is no evidence. I, I don't believe that to be true, but even going further than that, every study that I've ever read seems to indicate that while... The vast majority of sightings that have been reported would appear to be explainable in some fashion. There still is some, sometimes low double-digit, sometimes single-digit percentage of these sightings that are unexplainable and that remain unexplainable. So the combination of the fact that this was a secret study, which I think is an, an odd, a bit of an odd thing. Why would you study something like this secretly? And then what, why would you sit on the results for so many years if indeed you had proof that, or some kind of evidence, that UFOs were not real, and again, the notion of a UFO not being real, if it's an unidentified flying object, that's not saying that it's a spaceship from another planet. It's just saying that we don't know what creates it. To say that all of the sightings that they studied fall into that category, I, I just have a problem with that, and it seems to me at that point, Gene, their sampling methods le- maybe left something to be desired. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And before we get to our guest of the evening, Dr. Roger Lear, we're going to talk about this development in the U.K. It would be interesting to see the specifications, because if you remember way back in the 50s and 60s when the Air Force was actively investigating these things and they had Project Mm -hmm. Blue Book and everything, they said, well, we were able to explain most of the cases, some were not explained, but we feel that if we had more information, more information, we would be able to explain them as well. Now, that, of course, is as unscientific as you could be, because how do you know until you explain them that you can explain them? Many episodes ago, my brother and I came on to the uh, show and talked about the thing that we saw in Caracas, Gene in the mid-70s, and, you know, I just think about that one episode in my life, and I think that for someone to tell me, okay, what you saw was some sort of a natural phenomenon, that it was some sort of configuration of atmospheric events that created this impossible thing that you saw, I, I mean, that's just nonsense to me. People say to me, so you believe that you saw something, and I say to them, I don't have to believe anything. I was there with Thousands of other people, certainly in the immediate vicinity around us, there were hundreds of other people, 
But the newspapers the next day said there were thousands of others that had seen this thing. I don't have to believe a darn thing. I know what my eyes saw. I, it wasn't something where there was any ambiguity about it, Gene. What, what we saw was a very unusual thing that, as far as I'm concerned, human technology could not produce in the mid-'70s and still can't produce. Existing human technology cannot make this thing. Now, future human technology might be able to build such a thing if we survive that long. But, you know, when people come out with these definitive studies one way or another, this is when my skeptic radar comes right up and I say, well, what was the benefit to them having announced even at this point this study, just like when the Air Force came out a few years ago with yet more commentary about the Roswell episode. You know, if something wasn't truly odd about all of this, why would they continue revisiting it? Why do you think? Well, there's a public clamoring for information. You know what happens? Every so often we have this flurry, this flap of UFO activity that makes the national press. And then we have all these stories that go around them. At this point, there's enough public pressure to do something, so the government says, well, there's no evidence. And then maybe the flurry of sightings dissipates, and people get on to other things like the high price of gas, whatever the crisis of the day is, sure. and they are no longer concerned with the prospects of being visited by aliens, interdimensional beings, whatever might be causing UFOs. This is not one of their priorities. Their priority is daily life. And it goes in waves, and it's been happening since the late 1940s. We had the flurries in the late 40s and early 50s, and it died down, and it came back, and it just goes on and on and on. But you're kind of lucky in one respect, David. You've seen something strange. I've yeah. never, in all my years of following the subject, seen anything I could not identify. This is not to say that things haven't happened around me. And I'll give you an example. Back in, I think, 1976, I was the sponsor of a small UFO convention in southeast Pennsylvania, in one of the Philadelphia suburbs, I believe King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. And one of the mistakes we made, by the way, is we didn't think or consider that people who lived in Philadelphia would not want to drive to the suburbs to see this. So maybe the attendance wasn't as good as it could have been. But we had a decent number of people there. And one of the speakers at the event tells me the next day, well, I saw a UFO last night. Oh, really? And you didn't, and you didn't come back to the hotel to tell me so that I could see it too? Well, it wasn't in the skies for that long. And I think one or two others saw something but not me. Let's go back a few years prior to that. I'm living in southern part of Minnesota, in the Midwest, indeed, the heart of the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And I'm a radio broadcaster and a local UFO researcher who had some writing credentials, and I won't mention his name, but he was undergoing all sorts of UFO and paranormal experiences, everything happening around him to his friends, but not to me. Now, in, in his case, I feel lucky it didn't happen to me because things got a little bit hairy there. But that's the way it's always been. Things happen among the people that I know, like yourself, but not to me. Well, it's not like we ask for these things, Gene. I, I have to tell you, the range of experiences that I've had in my life, I've never sought these out. I've never asked for them. 
And uh, to be perfectly honest with you, when people tell me that they wish they could have these types of experiences, I just warn them to be careful what they wish for. I know that other guests of ours have claimed to have had things like close encounters and, you know, approach this with an air of um, fascination, and, and, and they seem to feel that these are beneficial experiences. I have to tell you, from my point of view, I have perhaps not felt quite the same way as a lot of these people. I don't approach these things and think, oh, this is great that I had this experience, um, that I need this kind of a mystic experience in my life. Uh, to be perfectly honest, most of the experiences I've had along these lines have, have really left me quite jarred, quite scared, because when, you know, there's this disconnect gene, when you your brain and your eyes are seeing something that has no parallel in your experience, when, when you're in the moment going through this and when you know that you're not seeing some random light in the sky when you know that what you're seeing is definitely something very unusual whether we're talking about UFOs talking about other types of paranormal experiences things like seeing spirits and ghosts these are not pleasant experiences in in my life they've been fairly unpleasant to be honest with you and so you know, it's not like your friends who saw these things didn't want you to see them. I don't think that they plan for these things either. When you're in the moment and this is happening, one of the things that you find is that you really can't function. A lot of the times it's hard to respond because you're literally frozen with fear. At least, again, that's how I felt when my brother described his point of view of the Caracas episode as a I think he's, he referred to it as the closest he would ever come to having a religious experience. I'm glad that, that he felt that way about it, because I think that in modern Western life, we don't really have what I would consider to be the types of beneficial mystical experiences that would help us maybe evolve a little more quickly as, as spiritual beings. But um, I can live without those kinds of religious experiences, because again, they're they're very disconcerting, and you know, there is this piece in our brain, this this part of what I believe we once were, you know, this, this animal part of the brain that faced with that kind of fear uh, really starts to implode a little bit on you. So I don't know if you want to see one of these things, Gene. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. I may feel that way. Yes, I'll tell you more about that in a moment, but I want to tell people you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. In just a very few minutes, we're going to join Dr. Roger Lear. He's a physician who says he has operated on people to remove so-called alien implants. All right. Oh, wild stuff. It oh, is man. wild stuff. You know, I wouldn't want to be abducted. I know that people who claim to have been abducted by aliens try to portray it as a positive experience. But think about this for a moment. You're sleeping in your bed, and you got to go to work the next day, or maybe you're spending the weekend with your family, you want to have fun, and then some creature paralyzes you and elevates you, levitates you, and takes you into a spaceship and performs weird experiments on you, or maybe throws something up your nose to track you or check your DNA. Tell me, folks, how is that a positive experience? That's frightening. Do you remember the movie they made of Communion? The, oh, man, I hate that thing. I, yeah, I remember it. I saw it. 
The only good part is that it has Christopher Walken in it. Yes, playing Witness Strieber. But yeah. the experience to me in that movie, we had bad special effects. It wasn't a good movie. I think it could have been a lot better if maybe Whitley Strieber didn't exert as much control over getting it made. It was made more into a fictionalized setting. But I thought, frightening, these gray aliens are there, and they're playing around with your body, and they're doing things, and they're testing, and they're sending probes yeah. all over your body and orifices and everything. This is the most horrible experience one can imagine, and I just wonder how people can say it's positive. And maybe as we progress with the show, we're going to ask more and more people about that. But right now, we want to ask a lot of questions of Dr. Roger Lear. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits you're in the paracast with gene steinberg and david bandney you never know what's going to happen next you are about to enter another dimension a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Dr. Lear, how did you first get interested in studying UFOs? Well, most of my uh, uh, integration into this field uh, is uh, one synchronistic event uh, after another. Uh, it dates all the way back to uh, 1947 when I remember uh, very distinctly my father bringing the uh, newspaper into our kitchen at home uh, laying it out on the kitchen table, reading the headline uh, to my mother that said, U.S. Army Air Force captures flying saucer. And uh, he went on with a long uh, dissertation uh, telling her that they were not obviously the only intelligent creatures in this uh, universe, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that impressed me and uh, stuck with me. And he was uh, very dismayed, uh, actually quite mad in the next uh, day or so when the headline said, uh, not a saucer but a balloon. 
he was one of these people who, uh, if you were an, an expert in some field, then uh, by his logic, uh, you should know everything about it. Uh, for example, if you were a plumbing uh, plumber, <laughs> you should know everything about uh, plumbing. Uh, and uh, he said, I remember, that uh, you mean to tell me that the United States Air Force can't tell the difference between a saucer and a balloon? <laughs> so um, he was uh, very dismayed over that. I, I remembered that. And I've always had an interest in uh, my younger life in astronomy. In fact, at one time I uh, aspired to be an astronomer, but my <laughs> math grades were not such that uh, that was possible. Anyway, I went into, um, into podiatric medicine and uh, began practicing. I got a pilot's license and uh, was multi-engine rated, um, never really did see anything unusual. Then, uh, again, another piece of uh, synchronicity happened. I was invited to attend a uh, meeting of the local uh, mutual UFO network, and uh, I did that, and I uh, was kind of impressed, and uh, the price was $5, and they had homemade cookies. And uh, I couldn't think of anything better than uh, having uh, an interesting lecture and uh, homemade cookies with, with uh, what seemingly were a normal cross-section of the population. The cookies especially sound really interesting to me. <laughs> Absolutely. They were chocolate chip cookies, which happened to be one of my, one of my favorites. <laughs> Finally, I, uh, to, to condense this, I, I joined uh, MUFON, both the local group and the uh, international group, and then I was asked to uh, write a column uh, for the periodical, which was called the Vortex. And in doing so, I became uh, an investigative reporter. I would attend various conferences and uh, listen to what I heard and uh, give uh, my uh, op-ed in, uh, in the periodical. Uh, some didn't like what I wrote, and uh, some did, but uh, it was my own honest opinion. And I was uh, quite critical of uh, some of the things that I heard at UFO conferences. But it was, uh, again, I, I thought it was an honest opinion. I uh, attended a UFO conference, and uh, at this particular conference, I was introduced to a gentleman who had some x-rays of a foot, and uh, since that's my uh, field of expertise, I was uh, interested, but he touted uh, two small metallic objects, which were evident in the big toe as being alien implants, and that uh, was the straw that broke the camel's back because that was the funniest thing I had ever heard. <laughs> Happily walked away chuckling, saying, uh, oh, here's another nutcase. Anyway, uh, a friend of mine who was there with me, who happened to be section director uh, for the organization, insisted that I come back and at least hear what he had to say. So... Uh, I said, you know, these look like uh, leftovers from a foot surgery because uh, we use a lot of uh, metallic stuff, pins and screws and plates and so on. And he said, well, uh, she's never had a foot surgery. And I said, well, can you prove that? And with that, he reached into a bag, pulled out a large uh, stack of medical records, handed them to me and said, well, here, uh, you'd be happy to look at these and uh, tell me what you think. Uh, I said, well, if I could take them to my room, I'll go over them. So uh, I did, and I looked over them that night. I didn't see where she had 
a previous uh, foot surgery. So I came back the next day and I said, well, I didn't see anything there. But if you think these objects are so unusual, why don't you just take them out and see what they are? And uh, he said that uh, that she would probably um, be okay with that, but unfortunately she didn't have any medical insurance and didn't have any funds to pay for the surgery. And I said, where does she live? And he said, well, uh, in the great state of Texas. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, you get her to California and I'll do the surgery for no charge. But he said, do you really mean that? And I said, uh, yes, uh, I do. Well. He got another case uh, besides uh, this one who had an object uh, in the hand, and uh, I told him I don't do hands, so I enlisted the services of a general surgeon friend of mine. In um, August of 1995, we did the first two surgeries for removal of these objects. I mean, i got to remember that I was doing this as a consummate scientific skeptic to prove that this was just totally a bunch of nonsense. Uh, the surgery was justified because the patient was having discomfort and there were recognizable foreign bodies. So uh, it was uh, certainly within the purview to uh, to take them out. And that's uh, how I got into it, and that's when the surprises began. We'll talk about the surprises after I remind everybody this is the Paracast. And our guest, Dr. Roger Lear. And according to what he tells us, together with his medical team, they perform 11 surgeries for removal of metallic and non-metallic objects from individuals who allege alien abduction. These objects have been submitted for scientific analysis with startling results. And we're going to explore this in more detail. But I know before this interview started, David was telling me he had a load of questions and right now he's going to grab the microphone from my neck and he's going to get he's going to take over david thank you gene uh, dr lear there are a couple of things i'd like to get right out of the way in these 11 surgeries you've removed what you say are metallic and non-metallic objects in these 11 instances are there any elements or aspects of these implants that are consistent throughout all of the 11 or do they seem to be from different sources well amongst the um, the group of uh, metallic objects uh, we find certain commonalities uh, number one they are uh, metallic and they are covered with a biological material which uh, upon analysis appears to be anchored into the metal. Now, uh, as far as I know, and I've been in numerous laboratories around the world, we do not have a technology yet for uh, producing this kind of a situation. Uh, next, we, uh, when we look at the morphology, we have four that are little metallic rods, and if you laid them out uh, one next to the other, and I had no idea which one belonged to who, you would never be able to tell where they came from. Uh, now, that's looking at the superficial morphological uh, aspects. If you look at the metallurgical aspects, uh, we see that they're all highly magnetic. Uh, we find that they all um, contain large amounts of iron. We find uh, that the iron is uh, amorphous. That means it has no crystalline structure. And the mystery there, again, lies um, in the fact that how do you have iron that's amorphous and have it magnetic? Mm -hmm. 
And the next thing is that we find that uh, certain numbers of these contain non-terrestrial isotopic ratios, which means that they don't come from here. Basically, to talk about that membrane that you say is bonded to the metal, when you say bonded, is it bonded at a molecular level, or is it bonded in terms of something that could be some sort of an adhesive? Uh, no, and uh, I don't believe, I have to correct you, David, I don't believe I said the word bonded. Okay. I said it's uh, attached. Attached, and, okay. And uh, when we look uh, through the electron microscope, which you can look at at various uh, KV settings, uh, you can look from the surface and then farther and farther into the metal, we see that there's actually apertures in the metal itself where the tissue has uh, either grown into or grown out of uh, at this point. I'm, I must add that I, I don't have the answers to a lot of these uh, mysteries. And, in fact, uh, when I think I'm closing in on something, I really wind up with a lot more questions. <laughs> What's the membrane made out of, Doctor? The membrane uh, itself is uh, quite simple. It's composed of three biological materials. One is a, uh, a protein matrix. The second portion of it, I mean, let, let's look at this as a bowl of jello. Mm -hmm. So we'll fill the bowl with just plain ordinary jello. That's this uh, protein. And then uh, we'll add to it uh, some dark brown granules. These are hemosiderin granules. And hemosiderin is a cousin to a hemoglobin. And hemoglobin, as we know, is an oxygen-binding pigment that uh, allows for the transport of oxygen through your red cells. So it's, a, it's an oxygen-binding uh, uh, material. And the third thing is what we call striated keratin. And keratin is the uh, outer surface layer of the skin or your eye or your hairs or your hair or uh, nails. So um, we've done a lot of research um, in all sorts of uh, microbiology and pathology books, so there's no such combination that has ever been removed from the human body. Hmm. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're proud to be spending an evening with Dr. Roger Lear, a UFO investigator, a physician who has had a chance to look into quote-unquote alien implants. Now, before getting into this kind of surgery at all, did you have any particular opinions, Dr. Lear, as to whether these abductions were real? Well, at that point in my life, uh, you know, I began to hear about abductions. Now, you got to remember that the abduction, alien abduction subject, uh, for many, many years, was not even accepted by some of the uh, organized uh, 
UFO Association, Mutual UFO Network, uh, didn't consider abductions real. Uh, QFOS didn't consider it real. And, and certainly it wasn't even around in the days of NICAP. But um, as time went on, they did begin to uh, accept abductions. And then, of course, Bob Hopkins in New York came out with the book Intruders, which uh, just shocked uh, everyone with uh, numerous documented cases. And then uh, John Mack, uh, Dr. John Mack, the late John Mack from Harvard University, who was a Nobel Prize winning uh, psychiatrist, uh, came out with the book uh, Abduction. So that lended uh, credence to the um, to the subject, and you have to remember, from my standpoint, I, I'm coming from a scientific background. So someone like John Mack, who is a very well credentialed, uh, peer-reviewed individual, is uh, telling us that uh, abductions are are real. Then you know perhaps uh, it's uh, worth looking at. So that's about the time I came on uh, to the scene. Of course, things changed uh, after that through through the years. To get back to that membrane material, Dr. Lear, is it your theory that this membrane around the metal implant acts as some sort of a, a way for the body to not actively attack this thing, to not reject it? Is that is is that the conclusion you've come to? I'm curious. Yes, that's uh, absolutely, and uh, if you came up with this as your own idea, I commend you. But when, uh, because I, I don't know if you read my work or not, but if you look at the, uh, the pathology of the surrounding material, which we remove, uh, we not only take the object out, but we also remove the uh, tissue that's around it. When you look at that, that, that was one of the most surprising original things that came back from uh, pathology that really uh, knocked me off my seat, so to speak. There was no uh, inflammatory reaction. Now, you know, uh, how do you get something inside the human body and not uh, have the body react to it? That's uh, high nigh impossible. You know, and you can look at all the aspects of it. You know, even a World War II shrapnel wounds, which pilots carried around for years and said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not having any trouble. I've got five pounds of shrapnel in me. (laughs) (laughs) But any one of these... Any one of these pieces, you know, could be biopsied at any time, and you'll see that they're enclosed in what's called a fibrous inclusion cyst. So if the body don't like it and can't get rid of it, it just walls it off. But, right. you know, we had uh, one of these objects we removed since the fellow was six years of age. And over that length of time, you know, there should have been at least a fibrous inclusion cyst, but there was nothing. So, yes, uh, 100%, I, I believe that... This uh, particular tissue kind of seals it off so that the the body's reticular endothelial system or immune system does not attack it. As far as the actual metal implants themselves, doctor, uh, under analysis, did did they show any signs of artificial generation in terms of being machined? What did the what did the analysis reveal in terms of the surface of the metal? The surface of the metal, uh, and we've done extensive surface uh, studies using optical microscopy and what's called uh, atomic force uh, microscopy, and um, it shows that the the metal uh, is relatively smooth on the outside. The last uh, rod we removed had some uh, grooves in it that ran uh, 76 degrees uh, to the long axis of the rod, 
and then uh, crossed over uh, the ends. Each end uh, was different. So there are certain aspects that look like uh, like our version of machining, but I think we're dealing with a technology here which <laughs> doesn't operate the same equipment that we have here. And also to add to that, I think we're dealing with a very basic sort of nanotechnology where you can use uh, elements of the universe in their in their raw combined form uh, to perform uh, a, a function or even generate uh, what we consider a morphological field that can uh, perform a uh, function. Now, these do generate electromagnetic fields, and the last one that we looked at uh, generated um, a radio wave um, in two frequencies in the FM band. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, and I'm not an electronics engineer, so uh, does that mean that they are actually generating these uh, waves? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, there could be a harmonic uh, bouncing off something else. Um, in fact, I think it's fairly ridiculous uh, to think that an advanced civilization uses a radio wave at all. But uh, whatever is um, energizing this uh, material can, I suppose, activate it so that we, you know, could de detect it uh, by our electromagnetic uh, frequency equipment as a radio wave. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. This is the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Dr. Roger Lear, a physician who has actually had a look at the alien implants. And the question I have now is an obvious one, which is now that you've gotten this material, and obviously opinions are going to vary all over the place, but can now, can you take this to the scientific community and say, hey, this proves something's going on there, and it's not just somebody sticking something in somebody's nose or foot or something? Well, uh, we've tried to do this in the past, and uh, we haven't any success. And, of course, the biggest criticism that uh, our research gets is that it's not peer-reviewed. We got very close to uh, having a peer-reviewed article, and uh, fortunately, and I say fortunately, uh, it never um, got to the um, to the publisher because uh, right at the last minute we found uh, an error that would have made us look like absolute fools. But it's a very hard thing to get done, and I've, I've got to take this opportunity to tell your audience that this uh, research uh, costs uh, a lot of money, and. And this is just skimming the surface. So what we're trying to do is to uh, buy a piece of property here in, uh, on the West Coast, build a physical plant, and uh, hire in-house scientific uh, types that will actually do the research and get it into the peer-reviewed journals. 
then we will, uh, by doing that, we will accomplish uh, what you just asked me about. This uh, project uh, also uh, needs a lot of money to, to get off the ground, and uh, the only way I thought of, of doing this is to do a major motion picture, and that's what we're working on now. It's called Earth's Original Sin, and it's, a, it's not a documentary. It's an entertainment film. The only purpose uh, for it is to raise money uh, so that this uh, physical research institute can be uh, erected. Our script is almost finished. We have the teasers are finished. We have some uh, really good uh, Hollywood uh, interest uh, in the film. And uh, we, at the present time, if, if there's somebody out there that would uh, like to uh, make a donation to the cause, uh, if they contact me, we we will, for $500, uh, gift them back uh, a one-eighth of one percent point uh, in the production. And uh, it's a tax write-off because I have a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and if they uh, make the check payable to uh, ANS Research and need a write-off, why uh, it can be written off. But this gives us the seed money um, to help push the project along. So uh, if you can give out my contact information, if anybody's interested and they're really interested in seeing uh, more, you know, more science in the subject, I think that's what the field needs. Do you have a website set up for this kind of information? Yes. Uh, the website is alienscalpel.com with one S. Okay, alienscalpel.com. And I think that might be the best. Can they donate from the site? They can donate from the site, and I'm happy to give out my phone number, which is 805-495-2613. Once again, 805-495-2613. They can get my secretary, and she'll send them all the information they need to participate. Okay, well... You'll get the phone calls then. And by the way, if you forget the address or the information when you're listening to the show, if you write us at news at com, we will forward your queries direct to Dr. Lear, and then you know any business you transact will be between you and Dr. Lear. Dr. Lear, do you have any books out there that we could look at to learn more about this before we progress with further details? Yes, I've got a brand new book, which uh, probably hasn't even uh, hit the major book uh, dealers yet. It's the uh, second revised edition of my first book, The Aliens and the Scalpel. The publisher is Booktree Publishing in San Diego. If they go into a bookstore, uh, they can uh, tell them the, uh, the publisher and the title, or they will order it for them. Or again, if they want uh, a confirmed copy, where I will sign the book, just uh, have them call the 805-495-2613 number. Tell them that they're interested in the book. The second one that we have, the second newest one, is uh, has nothing to do with uh, abductions per se, but it's a UFO crash in Brazil, and it's the my own uh, research into the 1996 event that happened in uh, a small town in uh, Brazil called Farchinha, in which there was a crash, a Roswell-like crash of a vehicle and uh, alien beings that were seen and captured by the Brazilian military and even a um, 
a surgery that was performed uh, on one of the beings in the local hospital by an orthopedic surgeon. So hmm. I think it's a very, very exciting, uh, true story and probably even much stronger than Roswell as a case. You say stronger. What are the weaknesses then in the Roswell event? Uh, the weaknesses at the, the moment uh, are the witnesses because they're dying off at such a fast rate. Uh, there's nobody to talk anymore, whereas in the Brazil case, which was in 1996, there's more witnesses that come forth all the time. Also, we're dealing with uh, two different political and uh, military structures. The term that uh, people spend in the Brazilian military is very short in comparison to what it is here. Also, up until 1956, uh, Brazil was under the regime of a real uh, jackbooted thug government, and so they've been used to being persecuted, huh. and hmm. and we're not used to anything like that here. So in Roswell, when, uh, when a military officer went around to the houses uh, slapping his, the palm of his hand with a baton, uh, telling uh, people that uh, you know if they talked, they'd find their bones you know in the desert, uh, they were pretty well intimidated. Well, that doesn't work in Brazil. Okay, they're used to it there. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. The women in Brazil are uh, have a little bit different attitude uh, there too. They're less, uh, even less intimidated uh, than the males are. Case in point, uh, after this episode occurred, uh, which was January the 20th of 1996, the uh, it was the habit of these military officers uh, at uh, this base. Uh, called Sergeant's Camp uh, to come home for the weekend, spend five days on the base, and then uh, come home for a relatively normal family life. Well, uh, when this event occurred, these uh, military officers didn't come home, and there was a lot of plans and uh, things that uh, the wives had planned for the families and so on. So what do you think? Uh, the very next week, uh, the the wives were in, you know, to the local hairdresser, uh, getting their hair done, uh, griping about the fact that their husbands never came home for the weekend, and they had plans. And uh, what were their husbands doing? Some frivolous thing about chasing aliens around the countryside. Oh, yes, frivolous indeed. David? Dr. Lear, I, I want to talk a lot more about this Brazilian episode, but just to, to just finish a question or thought I had about these implants, after all of this research and all of the analysis on these implants, do you have any theories about what these things might possibly be? Well, if you stay strictly within the scientific paradigm, I mean, you can make all the conjecture you want. Uh, theories, of course, have to be taken into a laboratory and either proven or disproven. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I guess I'm entitled to my own personal theory. Yes, I think they have a good possibility as being uh, genetic markers uh, because we know that uh, the abduction phenomena goes on uh, through generations and families. And I believe uh, from my studies done on young uh, children uh, over a four-year period, uh, I looked at 17 functional growth characteristics, and we found that they've been accelerated from 16 to over 80%. And that is uh, a big jump 
for 40 years, and these statistics are uh, worldwide. They're not uh, just the local U.S. Uh, statistics. So, um, you know, if you, have, you look and, and accept the statistics, then you have to say, well, what's doing this? Is it uh, evolution? Well, evolution in a 40-year period, I mean, you're not even talking about what we categorize as quick or fast evolution. It's uh, way too short for that. So we can pretty well knock out evolution. Uh, the next biggest thing is environment. But since these are worldwide uh, statistics, it would appear that you're dealing with so many different variable factors, uh, food and and temperature, climate, uh, uh, habits, uh, television, no television, etc., that you can't find anything constant that would uh, make these very uh, specific accelerated changes. Uh, if we look at another category, which might be uh, mutations due to uh, uh, high-energy particles coming through uh, the hole in our ozone layer, for example, uh, mutations are not consistent. The mutations are random. You might find a baby born with a blue eye and a brown eye or six fingers in one hand and you know, five on the other. But these are very specific uh, growth characteristics, and uh, they are constant. So it's not a mutation, it's not environment, and it's not uh, evolution. So really, there's only uh, two other logical possibilities. Uh, one is it's an act of God. And if you're a devout theist, uh, then sit back in your armchair, be satisfied, uh, it's an act of God. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the end of it. But if you're not satisfied with that, then the only other single logical possibility is that our genetics are being manipulated. And uh, henceforth, my theory that um, perhaps 15% of the abductee population are tagged, uh, so to speak, so that the information can be obtained from changing genetics. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at one eight 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 ufo maga or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call one 888 U-F-O-M-A-G-A, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card.
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Dr. Roger Lear, and he has been investigating UFOs, focusing on the implants or genetic markers, whatever the aliens he feels might be placing within some of the abductees. One of the things that bothers me about this abduction phenomenon is that so many people seem to have been abducted and we're hearing numbers in the hundreds of thousands or millions. Do the aliens, if there are aliens out there, need to abduct so many people to find out what we're doing, who we are, etc.? Well, you know, it's very difficult to place human logic against non-terrestrial logic. How in heaven's name could we ever imagine what a non-terrestrial being thinks? one that's hundreds of years older, one that's thousands of years older, a race that's millions of years older. So, But just based on, on human logic, if, for example, David Jacobs thinks the reason they're coming here is to produce uh, a hybrid race, now uh, perhaps that's true. Uh, maybe different guys have different uh, agendas. Maybe we're destroying the planet so badly that uh, we may cause our own extinction, and they're looking to uh, replace us with something else you know, that might do the problem, not have the same problem. On the other hand, if, if we are the initial result, of genetic manipulation, you know, we find anthropologically uh, Homo sapien footprints right alongside Neanderthal. So how in the world could we ever be a descendant of Neanderthal? So if we were a, product, a project, for example, Zachariah Sitchin talks about the Anunnaki coming here 435,000 years ago and uh, fooling with the uh, genetics of uh, whatever primitive man was here and producing Homo sapien. Well, perhaps they've seen what we did uh, through the years. I mean, the record uh, has not been that sterling. Uh, we destroyed each other. Horrifyingly, uh, most uh, advanced civilizations, uh, Romans, Greeks, uh, Maya, the Inca, the Aztec, mm-hmm. they're gone. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we are on a path to destroy ourselves, but now we've added something new to it. Now we're destroying uh, the planet. Uh, they just found out uh, about a year ago that the release of atomic energy in the form of uh, a weapon releases a magnetic wave that leaves the Earth and goes out into space. Nobody knows where it goes. Nobody knows what it does. But maybe some intelligence somewhere else does. So we're not doing too good. So maybe if to save somebody else's butt, maybe they're coming here and doing something with our genetics because that's really the way to solve the problem. If we just change the problem, and the problem is us, the problem is human, this problem, this problem is within us. We can pick up a weapon and just as easily annihilate each other as go down to the store and buy a loaf of bread. That's not right. That goes against every natural law of creature. 
that we have on this planet. We're the only ones that do that kind of thing. So maybe, again, I don't think it's a, an altruistic thing. I don't think that they're doing this uh, for particular altruistic uh, reasons to uh, do us a big favor. I think they're saving their own butts because the repercussions uh, from what we do may go on to affect uh, other civilizations, uh, our solar system, other solar systems, and other parts of the galaxy and other parts of the universe. So if we are being interfered with, and there's every indication going through all recorded man's history that we have been visited for thousands and thousands of years. So I don't think this is anything new, and I don't think anything, any, anybody should really be surprised. And if you look at the polls lately, especially in the U.S., where people are used to uh, looking at uh, a gray alien head on the back of a bumper of a car, uh, that we aren't very surprised anymore. You know, I have one question about all this. If the aliens have been here for thousands of years, and they're watching over us, and they're seeing that we are a bunch of screw-ups. Okay, we're a bunch of screw-ups. We mess up everything. We mess up the environment. Why can't they stop it? Why can't they do something to influence us so that we stop being screw-ups? Well, again, based on human logic, and we can look at uh, Margaret Mead's um, uh, concept of uh, what happened when a higher intelligence uh, meets a lower intelligence, uh, the influences are, are not good. And so perhaps living creatures can't really have a one-to-one. -one. Now, uh, going back to Brazil, we know that at least one, and there are probably more, one military, young, healthy uh, military uh, police officer who handled one of the alien beings, 23-year-old uh, Marco Eli Chavese, uh, wonderful uh, condition, wonderful health, was dead within three weeks after handling uh, an alien being. Perhaps uh, direct physical contact is not uh, as easy as we think because uh, undoubtedly we uh, carry uh, microorganisms which could kill them off and perhaps they contain uh, microorganisms that if we're uh, exposed to them there would be no population left so uh, maybe the abduction thing is uh, the only direct contact now that's that's only uh, you know one possibility and there may be you know maybe dozens of, of non-terrestrial uh, entities that are visiting here. And how do we know it's organized in the first place? Hmm. Uh, for a hypothetical example, uh, let's say on the planet uh, Glug in a far star system, uh, you know, 40 light years away, uh, Joe says to his wife, hey, let's have some fun this weekend. Let's go down to uh, Sam's Rent-A-Saucer lot. Uh, we'll rent a saucer, we'll throw the kids in there, we'll take our lunch, we'll zip over this little blue planet in the, you know, in the Milky Way uh, uh, galaxy, and I hear there's a little blue planet out there, we'll, we'll hover there, we'll cloak, nobody will see us, these guys kill each other, they burn the planet, they blow things up, we'll have a ball! <laughs> you know, we'll, have a, we'll have a great weekend. So how do we know? It's just uh, you know some kind of a federation of planets, like in Star Trek, where they can't have direct uh, interference, uh, etc. All, all we know is that 
they come here, somebody drives them, and uh, something is uh, affecting human beings. I mean, that, that is the basic logic of what anybody knows. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Dr. Roger Lear, a physician who has been involved in abduction research, removing implants from some people. Now, before you remove these implants, and I want to return to that, were the people involved aware they had something inside them, that they feel something weird, unique, strange symptoms, something clogging up their nose, their legs, whatever? Well, in order to become part of the scientific study, they must have some uh, direct relationship with the UFO phenomena, either a prolonged sighting or uh, a conscious memory of an abduction or a strange dream, a physical mark or uh, something, something going on. Uh, we don't allow them to undergo any regressive hypnosis prior to the surgery. Uh, we just don't want that to uh, contaminate the scientific picture because uh, the best of hypnotherapists get criticism. So uh, that's the, uh, one of the primary criteria. And then they have to have um, a visible object in the body which appears on either an X-ray, a CAT scan, or an MRI. And uh, once if they complete the initial criteria, then we send them a large packet of questions which they have to answer, uh, send them back to me. The questions are evaluated. The uh, films are looked at by our radiologists uh, to determine uh, whether these are really foreign bodies because sometimes there are things that are misdiagnosed, uh, particularly in MRIs and CAT scans. And what sometimes appears to be a foreign object is really nothing but the cross-section of a, a blood vessel which has flowing blood on it, which appears bright. But uh, once this has been established, then they can become a candidate for the surgery. Dr. Lear, about the follow-up with these patients, after you remove these implants, is there any um, attempt to sort of track what happens to these patients afterwards? And a related topic, a related question to that have you been contacted by any government agencies? I mean, apparently, you know, the government has shown interest in this topic in the past. Your name is out there. I've actually looked at your website extensively. Have you had any interactions with government operatives who've come to you and said, all right, you know, we know you have these things, we want them. Any kind of recognition on their part that you, you are in possession of these implants? The only recognition that I've had is a mild, and when I say mild, because I have a... Uh, I know other people that have had uh, severe interference. I've had mild uh, interference uh, from the uh, state medical board, and it, it, it is you know relatively uh, mild. But they have uh, dug up things on me that hmm. you know, anybody could dig up on anybody else, and I was uh, persecuted for it. But uh, outside of that, and one conversation I had with a very famous astronaut, Dr. Edgar Mitchell who I 
tried to get in touch with uh, some years ago to invite to a conference in London, uh, who called me back from uh, his car on a cell phone in Florida. And my secretary told me I was on the phone, and I uh, went and answered the phone. I said, Dr. Mitchell, this is Dr. Lear. I don't suppose you know who I am. And before I was able to get that statement out, he speaks in a very matter-of-fact uh, tone. He says, but Dr. Lear, we all know who you are. Huh. Interesting. So if an astronaut uh, who I've never met in my life uh, knows mm-hmm. who I am and tells me something like that, I guess uh, there are folks that know who I am. And it would seem to be if you don't step on too many toes or don't exceed whatever timetable may be out there, I guess uh, they fairly well uh, leave you alone. Hmm. There's a big uh, thing coming up, uh, I think, uh, this month in Canada with a disclosure project involving Dr. Uh, Stephen Greer. So uh, we'll see what happens. Could you tell us about that? Well, I really don't know that much about it. Uh, I don't know what date, but uh, Paul uh, Hellyer, who was Secretary of Defense, I think. I'm not even quite sure about that. He was in... uh, in the Canadian government, he's the one that came out quite recently and said, oh, yes, definitely the Canadian government has been investigating UFOs for years. Hmm. Well, there's a, a big press conference that is going to occur in uh, Toronto uh, this month. You can probably find something out on the web. I just received a note about it uh, yesterday. You don't know what it's about? No, but they're going to have uh, witnesses there. There's supposed to be a large number of press there, and Paul Hellier is supposed to... Uh, Tell what the Canadian government knows about uh, the UFO subject, so it should be extremely interesting if it comes off. Related topic, I looked at the um, the video segment that's on your website with your appearance on the Proof Positive segment on the Sci-Fi Channel. <laughs> uh, fascinating wow. stuff. Well, tell us about this thing that you've got. Uh, tell our audience, please, about this uh, thing that you say is an actual piece of the crashed craft at Roswell. Well, we don't know that it's a crashed piece from the, uh, from Roswell, but we do know that it's a piece of uh, very interesting material, which we mm-hmm. believe did come from a crash site in that area. Now, it may have not been uh, Roswell. It could have been Socorro or one of the others. Uh, but I've known about this piece of material for some time, and it belonged to uh, a friend of mine, and he was a metallurgist in uh, in the R&D of the engine development business. So he was no slouch uh, when it came to metal, and he loaned uh, $35,000 on this piece uh, based on the integrity of the person that he gave the money to and some preliminary analysis uh, that his brother did. Then uh, he asked me if I wanted to... uh, take a piece of it and uh, have some more analysis done, uh, which we did, and this was done at the University of California, San Diego, and uh, we found that uh, it contained the main element was uh, silicon, and the uh, the lesser elements all showed non-terrestrial isotopic ratios. Uh, we went on from there. We held a press conference in 1997 in Roswell. Uh, a lot of press, a lot of press there, but <laughs> as things go, it was the same day that the Mars lander landed on Mars, so who do you think got the press? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Mars did. Uh, we didn't get that much. Then after that, there was uh, we took it to a lab, which I can now talk about, Southwest Laboratories in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, a very good uh, scientific friend of ours by the name of Bill Mallow uh, took the piece, and he did extensive uh, testing on it. Uh, one side appears to have been uh, looked like it was machined, and they were able to put it into a computerized device and measure the uh, the curve and extend the curve, and it looked like it came out of a cylinder that had a, about a 60-foot diameter. Hmm. We know that the metal was uh, exposed to temperatures in the millions of degrees. So... Um, Anyway, uh, yeah, proof positive we got this thing, and there was some interesting shenanigans that were done, and uh, <laughs> you never know who's going to do what. I mean, you know, all the television programs are basically in the entertainment business. Right. They don't care whether you have proof or not, basically. No. Right. Uh, I've done hundreds and hundreds of hours of uh Television and thousands of hours of radio, and certainly uh, the more respected medium is the radio, not television. So, Dr. Lear, based on the analysis that came back on this piece, is there any conceivable way that this was manufactured by human means? It's very, very hard to uh, eliminate that because you can go down to, um, to uh, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, you know, and you can buy um, all the non-terrestrial isotopes that you want to you want to purchase. But let's look at the practicality of that situation. To 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 do this uh, would cost a lot of money, and then to be able to combine them the way these things are combined, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you would be talking about something that would cost uh, a tremendous uh, you know uh, amount of money. And then, you know, to turn the technology back to 1947, that's uh, high nigh impossible. I mean, you got to remember, this was the 1947 was uh, the, the nuclear age was in its infancy, so yeah, sure in heck couldn't go down to uh, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and you know, buy the stuff that you could buy today. <laughs> I hope not. This is the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're proud to be spending an evening with Dr. Roger Lear. And he's a physician. He has done surgeries of alien implants, studied the field for many, many years. And I wanted to raise a subject that we've talked about on some episodes in the past. I don't know if you've heard us. We had, of course, William Burns, the co-author of The Day After Roswell, which was written primarily by the late Dr. Philip Corso. I'm sure you're aware of the things that Dr. Corso stated, which is that they used alien technology, fed it to private industry to jumpstart research into integrated circuits and other things. What do you think about that? Well, you know, uh, if I had just read the book, I know what to believe. 
because uh, there's a lot of controversy involving Colonel Corso. But I had the absolute honor and pleasure of meeting them on several occasions. Uh, I've seen interviews that were done with him in Italy, and he was the most loved person in Italy. He was an absolute you know, World War II hero, and he saved literally thousands of American lives. So to get to get him in a corner uh, with a hearing aid in each ear and have him start telling me things, uh, particularly about the bodies from Roswell, I was impressed, and uh, I, I believe what he says is true. So maybe I'm a sucker, but <laughs> I believe it. Well, David and I have both read the book, and I tell you frankly, I don't know what to believe. I realize the book went through several generations before Bill Burns got a hold of it and tried to edit it into a usable manuscript. Unfortunately, Philip Corso was ill. At the time, the book was finalized, and of course, that means we didn't have him around to talk to anymore. David, I just want to ask you, since we're participating in this and I raise the subject, do you have any viewpoints after all the discussions we've had about Philip Corso, about all this? About the notion that uh, these technologies influence the development of our technologies? Um, I, I have issues with the timeline. Okay, Dr. Lear, so let's look back into the Brazil episode you've investigated so thoroughly. The creatures involved there, are this, this normal kinds of creatures that one associates with UFOs? Well, I think what we're trying to say is here is you've been down to Brazil to personally look into this, right? Yes, I've been to Brazil uh, on many different occasions. And uh, when I went there once, it was particularly to investigate the Varginha case. Okay, now, any of the aliens reported in this case, did they in any way have any resemblance to the other aliens we've heard about? Because now it looks like we're not just seeing gray aliens, but maybe we're seeing other colors, other varieties. No, they didn't resemble anything that's ever been seen before. Oh. And obviously, Obviously, uh, they, it would appear that they didn't expect to be walking around on this planet. Uh, they were not clothed. They, one of them, at least, was injured. Another may have been shot. There was the there was a piece of the, the craft that was missing, uh, trailing smoke or vapor uh, from the aft end of it. Uh, NORAD had uh, notified the Brazilian military and uh, Brazilian uh, Space Administration uh, when this craft was coming down, gave them the coordinates and told them exactly where it was going to impact. So uh, you can put two, to two, two and two together. Hey, thank you very much. One more time, Dr. Lear, tell us where we can go online to find out more information. Okay, my website is aliens, A-L-I-E-N-S, scalpel, S-C-A-L-P-E-L, but there's only one S. Alienscalpel.com is the website. Uh, there's a lot of information there, and any of the materials or contributions to Earth's original sin can be made either through the website or by calling 805 495 2613. That's once again 805-495-2613. Dr. Lear, thanks for joining us on the Paracast. My pleasure, Jane. Take care, Dave. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. 
To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Okay, well, that was thoroughly fascinating. My God. Now, did I hear right that there's something wrong with the doctor? Not in the interview, but since we taped that interview, Gene, I believe I read that the doctor is sick. Is that correct? Well, I heard this on George Norrie's show, Coast to Coast AM, just the other day. And let me preface this by saying that right after we finished the interview, Dr. Lear said he had to go to a doctor Mm -hmm. for a checkup. And I suppose, based on the information I've heard, he was then put in the hospital to check for a possible liver-related ailment. Apparently, he's okay, and certainly our prayers and hopes are with Dr. Lear and his family that everything will be okay. And that will be getting good word for you in the next week or so. In the meantime, we'll keep checking on the situation. In the meantime, there's a lot of provocative stuff in what he says, and it kind of takes you back to what... I talked about before the interview began, which is, to me, the abduction experience has to be frightening, extremely frightening, and I still don't understand how people can view that in a positive light. What do you think, David? To me, this has got to represent one of the most terrifying things that could ever potentially happen to someone. I have to tell you, though, Gene, even with this, I still have to fall on the side of, of skepticism with regards to the vast majority of what people report as abduction experiences. I mean, I read those Whitley Strieber books when they came out, and I have to tell you, something about them to me didn't exactly ring sincere. I felt that there was some sensationalism in them. And it's one of those things where if you truly have these kinds of experiences, Gene, and maybe this is just me, I can't say that everybody would behave the same way, but I would be very hesitant to really come out not only and talk about them, but quite frankly, to try to make a buck on them. I don't know how comfortable I am with that thought. And, you know, just so our listeners know, it's not like you and I are doing this show and making huge bucks at it. We're not making any bucks at it at this point. When we originally talked about doing this show, it was an idea that involved us talking about a topic that I I knew we were both fascinated with. But I've never viewed this as some, you know, great way to make a bunch of money real quick. And when I read about some of these people and their experiences, like the Strebers of the world, it seems to me like their agendas are perhaps not about finding truth, but about finding profit. And I don't know how I feel about that. Hey, let me tell you something as we talk about this abduction phenomenon. 
And I mentioned it very briefly on a previous show, and maybe we can analyze it for a moment in light of all the experiences we've heard described on the show so far since we started in late February of this year. I used to have these recurring nightmares when I was maybe eight, nine, ten years old. And this was before my brother got married and left home. And I remember sleeping. We both shared a bedroom. This is in the days when you didn't have enough money for your parents to have a three-bedroom house. It was a Mm -hmm. two-bedroom house. I had this nightmare of some dark, shrouded object or thing coming after me. And get closer and closer, and I'd wake up in a cold sweat. Now, I likened it to the dark awning of an apartment building around the corner. It seemed to be something like that, this dark awning coming Mm -hmm. towards me. Yeah, yeah. Right. It could also have been, of course, a UFO. It could also have been, if we wanted to look at this thing in a more extravagant fashion, maybe I was abducted when I was young. I don't know. I don't have anything in my nose that seems to be reacting in any strange fashion. These nightmares have not persisted, except for one other experience. Back in the 1970s, those wild and woolly years, Mm. my first wife and I are sleeping in the living room for some reason. I don't know why. And she wakes me up one morning, early in the morning, and says, I just saw a water elemental. And I remember seeing some kind of wisp or shadow of something. I presume she was just dreaming and the dream became too picturesque, perhaps. Right. It's, it bled into your waking life. Maybe. Um, but she believed it was something real. Yeah. You know, when we talk about dreams, Gene, and we haven't really gotten into this topic on the show, but you look at how dreams play out. And I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I don't pretend to understand all the mechanisms of the, the dream experience. But clearly, Gene... You know, you're describing in a, in a dream something where you're being pursued. The theme of, of being pursued in a dream is so common, it's not unusual at all. And, you know, when we talk about dreamscapes, pretty much anything is possible in a dreamscape. What Does that reflect something that actually happened that's a repressed memory? Not necessarily. I, I, I When people talk about, you know, communicating with the dead in dreams, I think that's the subconscious coming through, Gene. I don't know that that has anything to do with anything outside of someone's mind. And so I I, I have to be very skeptical about that. And I'll tell you what I'm talking about. For some odd reason, in the last few weeks, I've been having a series of dreams, very ultra-realistic dreams, about telekinesis. I don't pretend to understand why I'm having these dreams, but in the dreams... I am using my hands to control things in the dreamscape, to move things around. And in the dream, I'm fascinated by this ability because it feels so realistic. It's almost like I can feel how I'm moving the energy with my hands and nudging things around, kind of like that John Travolta movie, Phenomenon, that was actually, I thought, a very decent film. A lot of people didn't like it. It didn't do very well. Did you did you see that movie at all, Gene? I enjoyed it. I bought the DVD, as a matter yeah. of fact. It was a really interesting movie, I thought, and, and very well done. Interesting thing about it, at the very end of the movie, they didn't take the easy way out. We're not going to reveal anything else about it, but in a movie like that, you'd almost expect them to take the easy way out, and they didn't. 
which I thought was made the movie even more compelling. But in, in the movie, the way he moves things around with his hands and the way he's describing doing it, in these set of dreams I've had, there are now four dreams I've had in the, in the past two weeks, center specifically around some ability to move things with my hands in the dreams. Now, does this have anything to do with my waking life? Uh, it's got to have something to do with it in that, you know, dreams are an expression of the subconscious to a good extent. Does this mean I have some kind of hidden telekinetic abilities I don't know about? I highly doubt it. <laughs> I really, I don't think so, Gene. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're holding out on us here. But before we let anybody else hold out on us, I have to remind everybody this is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And this evening we were talking to Dr. Roger Lear. And I want to mention once again that as of the time that we're doing the show, he is in the hospital undergoing a treatment. We hope everything is okay. But we're talking about personal experiences and their impact. And certainly, I agree with you that dreams can portray all sorts of elements that are not necessarily real beyond mm -hmm. your own mind. The other issue is, how powerful is the mind? And can the mind generate some kind of what you perceive to be an external reality, which takes us back to the abduction phenomenon. The other thing that concerns me greatly is the hypnotic sessions that people undergo. Yeah. Suddenly they yeah. recall the aliens came to their home and they took them out of bed and they levitated them and they underwent these <sighs> frightening experiences. And what frightens me in a different way is whether the hypnotist is in some way influencing this particular perception. Right. Because understand that when you undergo hypnotic regression, as I understand it, you're not reliving a perfect version of what's happening. This is not the videotape edition or the video DVD edition. This is just something that may in part represent reality, in part represent some subconscious extrapolation of reality. How do you know? Well, you don't. And, and I think that that's a very important point about hypnosis. A couple of our guests have talked about Bud Hopkins. I've read some of Bud Hopkins' work, and... Granted, the guy is doing a lot of work in this area, and he's put a lot of effort into trying to figure out what's going on with people. But in the videos I've seen of Hopkins doing what he does, there has been some element that I've noticed of sort of steering the direction of the hypnotic uh, recollection. You know, hypnosis is very, very, it's, it's malleable. Right. You know, you, you can right. you can start to, you know what I'm saying, it, it's it's a thing where you can't rely on hypnosis, for example, in a court of law to recount or to remember some kind of an episode that might have been traumatic to someone. As far as I know, Gene, a hypnotic session is not admissible in a court of law as evidence. To me, that same method of defining how useful it is, I think should be applied to understanding things like close encounters or abduction experiences. I don't really trust 
the whole notion of using hypnosis as a research tool in this area. And I think that we have to take a good amount of the recollections that occur under hypnosis and just immediately discount them. Well, and, I look at it this way. I think hypnotic regression might help in understanding the totality of an experience. If there's other evidence, photographs, right, something right. else that indicates something went on and the percipient has no external recollection, maybe okay. on a limited basis you'll try right. hypnotic regression, limited with a proper degree of skepticism. And I think sure. David and I agree about this, a proper degree of skepticism as to the result because it is not going to be literal truth. Now, in saying that, I did, by the way, years ago, meet Betty Hill. Uh -huh. And if you all remember the incident in Exeter, New Hampshire, the book and the experiences of Barney and Betty Hill. I think Betty Hill is, is gone now. but She passed she, away, I think, last year. She was a lovely lady to talk to, very sincere, extremely sincere about what she experienced. But they did have an actual sighting that they then remembered more details about when they were trying to recover the missing time. That's another issue, too. You have the episode of missing time, which is where these hypnotic sessions are instituted because you're trying to figure out what happened during that two or four hour period. And if it accompanied a physical UFO sighting mm -hmm. where they really saw something, then maybe there's reason to think that something did occur. But again, how can you take it literally? You can't. That makes it really difficult to understand what happened to them. Yeah, in the case of the Hills, there are so many complications. One of the things that I found most fascinating about that episode, Gene, was that this was a couple who you would think under normal circumstances would perhaps not have wanted to be to have been pushed right into the public eye. This was a couple who back in the 50s, they were an interracial couple. Barney right. Hill was black, Betty Hill was a white woman. I have to believe that they probably would not have wanted to thrust themselves into the public spotlight in the way that ultimately occurred. That actually, to me, puts an interesting spin on that whole episode. It's probably one of the best studied abduction episodes in all of UFO history, contemporary UFO history. Um, and there are people on either side of the issue who claim that, you know, this is pretty much the one. Unfortunately, both Betty and Barney are are dead now. Right, and, and uh, Barney Hill died, I think, of a brain tumor many yeah, years ago. Many years ago. She maintained the story right up to the end of her life, as, as far as I know. She never once changed her version of the story. And some of the elements of that story were, were really fascinating and have been sort of played out in other aspects of UFO lore, like the origin of these creatures, supposedly, that these creatures were interested in human genetics. That seems to be something that we've seen as a thread over and over. I guess it's like anything else, Gene. We'll, we'll never really know, will we? No, except that that episode turned out to be largely the progenitor of the abduction scenario. Because of the why publicity it created, the book about it was a bestseller. And as a result, people became conscious of the possibility. As we learn more and more about abduction experiences, I wonder how much this particular tale 
And I don't know whether it's true or false. All I can right. say is, as I said, I've met Betty Hill once or twice. She was a lovely, sincere woman. Regardless of that, that could have influenced our consciousness about such episodes and maybe in part was responsible for more abductions or if you assume it was real. And we have to mm -hmm. say it could have been real. Certainly. Then maybe the aliens, quote unquote, instituted a new way of checking out human beings during that particular time frame that has continued through this day. I don't know. It's hard to know. And, well, I guess in recent times, in the past 15 years, we haven't had any real high-profile cases along those lines that I know about. I don't pretend to be on top of the entire UFO scene at this point, Gene, so there, it's very possible that there have been some reported episodes of that gravity. Not to my knowledge, but then again, there was that, that uh, thing that Dr. Lear was bringing up about that Brazilian UFO episode, that supposed crash disc. I hope Dr. Lear gets better because I want to have him come back and give us more details about that. I am dying to read that new episode of UFO Magazine with that cover story about Mac, what was it, Mac McDougal's his name? I mean, that, that story is just outrageous. Well, next week, let me give everybody a heads up here. Next week on the Paracast, we're going to have Bill Burns of UFO Magazine and nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman on together in the same show to discuss all of the things they have learned, all the new information that may enhance the story of the Roswell incident. Let me just quote a sentence from a note I got from Stan Friedman the other day. He said, I've been digging into the Marion Magruder case Magruder, and expect to call the Air University Library to get them to look at his 1948 thesis to see who his thesis advisor was and what school he was actually in. So Stan's trying real hard to nail this down. And I hope that by next week's episode, we might have a better picture of what's going on. I know I have a lot of questions about, still about Roswell. It is something that has been investigated so much, and there's so many contradictory excuses for what might have happened. It's one of the reasons, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that we have spent so many of these programs exposing the UFO enigma in all its complexities, from the funny or less serious part when we featured James Mosley on our first episode to the more confusing aspects to the story of the late Colonel Philip Corso, who said that when he worked in the Army back in the 1960s, he fed alien technology to private industry to jumpstart developments of integrated circuits and lasers and everything else. And all this stuff is so confusing. And yet you think that the modern UFO era began in 1947, June 24th, 1947. Kenneth Arnold, a private pilot flying in the state of Washington, sees these nine objects and everything that's happened since then. You know, I don't think we know a lot more about today. Doesn't that make you a little frustrated, David? Yeah, actually makes me a lot frustrated, Gene. I mean, I really had hope, kind of like what Stanton Friedman said in the episode where we had him on. He was hoping that he would live to see some of this stuff come out. We yeah, definitely have to explore this in more detail on future episodes of The Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. 
Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.